Good morning. I'd just like to uh, point out <coughs> that I also have a birthday in December. <laughs> the 14th. I, I'd, also, I'd also like... To, sorry? Ah, I'd also like to point... Oh, and, oh, they're all over the place. <coughs> I'd also like to point out that I'm older than Andy. But I can still remember the name... I can still remember the name of my wife. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Right. Okay. We have been doing a series uh, of sermons on what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, which runs from Matthew chapter 5 through to the end of Matthew chapter 7. Uh, it ends with, those, uh, with that famous uh, story of Jesus about the wise man who built his house on the rock and the foolish man who built his house on the sand and uh, the importance of, of uh, hearing and doing the words of Jesus to be wise. That's how it ends, which suggests, therefore, that all the stuff beforehand is what he's talking about as some of the stuff we have to do, not just hear, but do. I want to read um, from verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5. Originally, there was going to be a visiting preacher, I believe, today, and Andy contemplated a little while back to say, could I do this because the visiting preacher could no longer come? And I knew roughly where we were. I knew I wasn't here last week. I knew roughly where we were, and I realized that I was going to either have to do murder or do adultery. <laughs> and Andy told me it was murder, and I breathed a sigh of relief, really. <laughs> Let's read it. Um, verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into the prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. <clears throat> One of the joys of doing series is that you get to preach on passages which most preachers wouldn't pick if they weren't doing a series. I think that's fair, fair comment, and it's one of the important things, reasons for doing a series, so we don't uh, distort scripture or only pick the juicy bits. All right. Jesus has just told his disciples, you've learned this last week, I hope, that he had come to fulfill the law and not to abolish it, and that their righteousness had to exceed that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were Jewish religious leaders of the time. That's quite something, isn't it? He's saying to his disciples, look guys, if we're going to be serious about this, if we're going to make progress in the journey you've got to go, you have got to be a lot more righteous, a lot more holy living than the people who most people regard as holy. Hmm. 
pause there because an awful lot of what I want to say this morning has to do with Christian believers and how we live and how we behave. So we, we need to kind of contextualize it in what it is that transfers us from being uh, hopelessly lost to being full of hope and possibility. Because my righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees. That's me scuppered, isn't it? Gone, kaput, no good. Yeah? All right, I'm, I may be not as judge, be as judgmental as they were, uh, maybe not as legalistically, uh, uh, whatever the word is, inconsistent as they were, but boy, did they try. And boy, did they tick the boxes to keep the rules. And later, when uh, Saul, who became Paul, was talking about his past as a, a young Pharisee, he, he said, as the law, he was faultless. Whoa, that was something, eh? I'm not. So how can your righteousness and my righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees? Now, here we need to get a grip of what Christian teaching really is before we move on to how we respond to this passage. The Bible tells us that when Jesus died... We already learned last week that he fulfilled the law in himself. All the requirements of the Jewish law upon people was fulfilled in Jesus. So when Jesus died, he took on himself all our sin and all our guilt, all the stuff of life which is uh, out of kilter with God and out of step with God. He took all that and paid the required punishment of law in himself. That's what the crucifixion was all about. He died in my place, in your place, taking your punishment, taking my punishment. And then the Bible says that he rose from the dead and broke the power of death itself and declares to all those who put their trust in him and what he's done that they are righteous. Why? Because we inherit his righteousness, which was perfect. Okay? Or if you put it another way, we get clothed in the righteousness that is Jesus. And that's how God sees us. Now, God's not a fool. He doesn't, he doesn't sort of not know that we're not always what we should be. He has made the choice that the sacrifice of Jesus was enough. We are clothed in that righteousness. And if we put our trust in that sacrifice and in Jesus, we are brought into God's presence. We are accepted by God totally in Jesus but then the hard work begins of God by his spirit seeking to make us grow into what he has clothed us in. Right? You get the point I'm making. So, my righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, and yet it does, because my righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus. He's given it to me. Right? I'm okay with God. I really am. I'm okay with God and I can stand and come boldly into his presence all because of Jesus. It's important we get that right. Some people believe that Christians sort of think, well, what, what Christians believe is, is that we have to try and do as many good things as possible to outdo the bad things and hope that when we breathe our last, the balance is just about tilted in our favor. Absolute garbage. Christians believe we don't have a hope. Not a, a hope of being accepted by God, except in Jesus Christ. His righteousness becomes ours. He has fulfilled everything for us. He has done it all. And it is as we trust in him that we are accepted. No other way. No other way. Now, it's important we set that context first, because what I want to say afterwards, if you don't get that context, we'll make you go, 
Ooh. Right, here we go. <clears throat> Jesus refers here to one of the Ten Commandments. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Now, that's Exodus uh, 20, verse 13, one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, in the authorized version, thou shalt not kill, which has led to a great deal of misunderstanding. I'm not here opening the debate about whether pacifism is right and all that sort of stuff. You can argue that from other parts of Scripture. You cannot argue it from the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments are specifically about murder. And murder is the deliberate killing of another individual without legal warrant. Okay? So you might want to argue elsewhere, but this is a specific thing. It's the murdering of someone else. This is what Jesus is talking, talking about. But what Jesus does is he raises the bar. He said, you've heard it said you mustn't murder, and if you do, whoa, yeah, judgment. But listen, he said, listen, if you hate your brother or your sister, you're just as guilty. And that raises another fascinating issue because the, the new covenant, the new covenant which Jesus brought in through his death and resurrection, some people think makes life easier. And in some ways it does, but it doesn't make the standards any easier. In fact, all the way through, you'll discover that the teaching requirements of Jesus are actually at a higher level than the Old Testament law. It's not reduced by the coming of Jesus. Living right is made more difficult by the coming of Jesus in terms of its expression and how we live. Grace, the grace of God by which we are saved, the fact that God would look on us and, and think, even though you're, you're a sinner and filthy, I will take the sacrifice of my son in your place. The free and undeserved favor of God opens the door for us to grow in holiness. What it does not do is give an excuse, give an excuse rather, for our continuing in sin. Grace doesn't do that. Paul's very clear about this. Should I go on sinning that the grace may, may seem bigger? No, you know, far be it. That's not what this is about. This is about God clearing the decks and saying you're forgiven uh, by grace through faith. But you're forgiven in order that you may become like Jesus. You're forgiven that you would cooperate with me, says God, in becoming the person I want you to be. Jesus clearly equates being angry with someone with murder. Hmm. Now, later on in this sermon, Jesus speaks about the need to love our enemies. But his words here are about our attitude to fellow believers. If you remember a couple of weeks ago when I was preaching, I pointed out that in this sermon... Although the crowds were gathering, Jesus called his disciples to himself. And he was teaching his disciples when he came up with these words. He's giving a Christian lifestyle here. He's not laying down a legalistic framework for those who have no belief. This is for us as believers. His words are about my attitude to you and your attitude to me. Have you ever been angry with a believer? You're going, ooh. <laughs> okay, I have. Just about. I mean, I, it's not what I don't really do anger, to be honest. Uh, I can remember being really angry about twice, twice in my life. Um, but I, I've been a bit 
bit cheesed off with the believer. There are two perspectives here that I want us to focus on. The first one is this, our attitude to others in the family of God. Jesus is very clear. We are not to despise our brothers and sisters. We are not to belittle our brothers and sisters. We're not to insult our brothers and sisters. Raka! Probably, it's a, a Greek word, probably from the Hebrew word reka. And this means literally empty-headed. Okay. So obviously raka is a way of being very insulting to someone else. All right? Or if you like, in our language, moron. Yeah? Whether it be roast preacher for Sunday lunch. <laughs> don't misunderstand me. Sensible discussion and opinions are fine. That's, that's okay. Uh, but not that which demeans or is derogatory. Whether it be despising the worship leader, even if the choice of music wouldn't have been yours. Or bearing resentment because you feel someone didn't treat you that well and so on. Or, or you were ignored or you felt you were ignored and when you shouldn't have been. All that kind of stuff. Whatever is going on does not excuse us ever from speaking or thinking badly of one another. So what are we supposed to do? Well, the answer is we are supposed to think well of each other. We're supposed to speak well of each other. We're supposed to constantly encourage each other and bless each other. Now, therein lies a problem. The problem is this. It may be, it may be that I have a temperament and a, a, a manner of communication which you find incredibly irritating. Yeah, maybe. Or it may be that not you, the person next to you is irritated by me. Or you irritate the person next to you. It may be. Those are perfectly natural human reactions. We are not all the same. Okay? We're not. We can't pretend otherwise. And this sermon is not about, you know, you mustn't ever feel a bit by somebody. That's just normal human living. What this sermon is about is the choices we make when we feel with somebody you find you've got something against someone, go and sort it out. Don't moan to other people. By sort it out, I do mean do it in a godly way. I think I've told you before, there was an occasion in my youth in Dewsbury Salvation Army when I was about eight years old when something happened between the bandmaster and the young people's bandmaster, which was sorted out with tunics off outside, sleeves rolled up, and having a good set too. And I remember my father having to go and push them apart and separate them. I'm not talking about sorting it out that way. I'm talking about go and sort it out. Don't let the root of bitterness grow in your life. Don't moan to other people. Sort it out. If it's a major issue and that person rejects your approach, then ch take a church elder with you. Not in order to make them feel worse, but in order to say, look, <clears throat> this is important. We need to sort this out because th the future of the church is at stake. Now, this is very dear to me. This whole subject is very dear to me. I once pastored a church, not for very long as it turned out, because it nearly finished me off, where the certain people within that church would not under any circumstances be reconciled with each other. They just wouldn't. And this had gone on for a couple of generations at least within the same families. 
I got on with them all. But they would not get on with each other. I couldn't function like that. People would come to the church, they'd come to faith, and within two months they'd worked out what was happening and gone to another church. Thank you very much. Any church which has got a problem with relationships is a church which is dying. That's how important it is. It's not about how you feel or how the other person feels primarily. It's about what honors God and what honors his church. The Bible has very clear guidelines in all this about our attitude to others. But what about the attitude of other people to us? If someone has something against you, against us, they obviously should come and sort that out, shouldn't they? You know, if there's a problem, they should come and sort it out. You don't know there's a problem until they tell you. So they should come and sort it out. But if they don't, and you get wind of it, you need to go and sort it out. Why? Well, you may say, well, it's not my job. You know, they're the ones with the problems, not mine. Well, well, therein lies the problem. This is not about you. It's not about them. It's about the body of Christ, the family of God, and what it does to the reputation of Jesus Christ within the community. That's what it's about. You need to go and sort it out. Now, I'm not talking about big confrontation here, you know. I, I don't want a little queue of people outside talking to Andy, saying, Andy, I've got something to say to you outside now. You know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting... Uh, a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, rather than allow a kind of face-off for years. Hello, hello, nice to see you, yeah, yeah, whoop, get away as quickly as possible. Rather than that, say, come and have a cup of tea with me and let's have a chat. Let's build the bridge of relationship. Let's build the context in which we begin to understand each other. And then in that context, you can say, or someone could say to you, or you can say to them, I was a bit hurt when that happened. You know, because a relationship is built. That's a serious stuff. We live in a, an era where people try hard not to be serious about anything. That's why the British love comedy so much. Drives me to distraction. M modern comedy I find utterly offensive because it is destructive of people. Undermines people, makes fun of people, ridicules people in a way which is, which is desperate. Not all of it, but much of it. Life is serious. And accountability before God is serious. And we are, as Christian people, accountable before God. Oh, yes, we're covered in the blood of Jesus. We're not going to go to hell for this, really, if our trust is in Jesus Christ. But we are going to have to face the judgment seat of Christ and give account for what we have done and who we have been in the body of Christ. And that won't be a very pleasant experience if we get it wrong. Jesus suggests this is so serious that if you're bringing a gift to God to the altar... You are unacceptable to him if you harbor resentment or bitterness, pride or a desire for, re for revenge with regard to a fellow believer. Just don't bother coming, says Jesus. Don't bring a gift. It's, it's, God won't accept it. Whew. You feel uncomfortable yet? That's why what we did earlier on this morning, that's why breaking of bread is, is such an important time, partly because it's about recognizing the body of Jesus Christ, recognizing that we belong together, recognizing that what Jesus has won for us by his shed blood, by his broken body, is meant to bring us together into relationship, and there can be no excuse for not working at that. I've had the privilege of leading, in the Baptist context, which I used to be in, communion services, uh, in which I've, I've stressed this and seen people before they would take bread or wine, go to a brother or sister and be reconciled with them before they dare come 
to take the bread or wine. That's how serious this is. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 11 that we need to discern the body of Christ before we take the, body, uh, take the bread and wine. And a little bit later in this series, of course, we'll be looking at the Lord's Prayer. And do you remember what it says in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also for have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Then you find these words in Matthew. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive yours. This is big stuff. And experience tells me that the longer we leave something unresolved, the harder the shell gets, the more difficult to break it down, and the messier the consequences in the end. Keep it fresh. Keep it alive. Keep it in relationship. Okay. Second thing I want to say about all this is this is hard, isn't it? It can be very hard. Some people have been badly hurt by brothers and sisters. I have. You can't possibly have been in responsibility of church leadership without having been badly hurt by brothers and sisters. Some people want to do the right thing but battled with the heightened emotions that come when they face the issues which they know are lurking underneath. But you know, the biggest battle for the Christian is the battle for the mind. And we need continually to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that lesser things have no room. That's, that's one reason why, I, I mentioned comedy earlier, but that's one reason why I, I do get very anxious about the sorts of stuff we stuff our minds with. The sorts of banal, unquestioning, ab absorbing of this world's values and this world's way of looking at things. And this world is very much at odds with true Christian living. We need to be very discerning and careful in this. So that Paul says, love this passage of Scripture, one of my favorites in the whole of the Bible. Can you have favorites? You must be able to. In Philippians, Paul says, you should know what's coming because I've read it before. Philippians 4, 8 and 9 says this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That seems to me to take away any room for whatever is cynical, whatever is abusive, whatever demeans. Those things can't exist if the first things exist. The more we fill our minds and think about the stuff which is right, which is wholesome, which is true, which is good, the less room there is. Now, this is a battle. This is a battle. We know the battle for our eternal salvation has been won at the cross, but the battle for living here and now in the power of the Holy Spirit is to be entered into day by day. The battle for the mind. So here's a way forward. As Christians, the first thing we need to do in any situation is declare God's verdict. 
I'm facing this particular situation or this particular relationship problem. So what is God's verdict on that? What does the Bible say? What has God already said about how this should be and how this should be dealt with? You declare it. You say, this is what God says. Then you ask to act as God would have you do, however you feel about it. God, this is your perspective, and this is what you want me to do. I don't want to do it. Now, here comes the problem. You're thinking, well, hang on, doesn't that make you a hypocrite? Well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't make you a hypocrite because you're actually choosing to do the right thing. There's nothing in the Bible about the fact you must always feel before you do. There are times when you might want to strangle the preacher, but you don't do it, do you? Yeah? The first step, declare God's verdict. Second step, act as God would have you do. Third step, keep giving your emotions in the matter to him. It's part of your relationship with him over and over and over again. So we then work, and it can be very hard, at keeping a tender heart towards God and a tender and forgiving heart towards our brothers and sisters. Now, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. I know I sound like a... a record of the needle stuck sometimes, but I, I keep coming back to this because we do underplay this whole reality. The secret of Christian living is all about being filled with the Holy Spirit, keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, and living at a spiritual level rather than at the level of the body, the emotions, or the mind. Always. It is His divine power, He Himself living in us, the Bible says, because he, he comes to dwell in us by His Spirit when we put our trust in Jesus. His divine power living in us, which transforms us from the inside out. The Bible says we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. How's your transformation going? Are you more like Jesus now than you were this time last year? Are you more sensitive to, to God and his ways and his way of seeing things than you were this time last year? If not, why not? Because that's what God is seeking to grow in you. And of course, he works in us in particular ways, the Holy Spirit. He works by renewing our mind over and over and over again. The more we, we get things right, the more we, we, we do it the right way, he, he renews us, he renews us, he renews us. Father, I need to see from your perspective, the Holy Spirit is living within me, the Holy Spirit comes and he gives me perspective, he gives me understanding. And we, ne we need to make our emotions our servants and not our masters. I get very cross about some things, you know. People who fall in love and then say, oh, I just fell out of love. Well, isn't it? If, if love was what you fell out with, you're never in the first place. Love's a choice. It really is. The emotions that come with it, they fluctuate. They fluctuate. Um, I've said this before, and Betty won't mind because she's heard it many times. You can thump me afterwards. You know, I, I, I do not wake up every morning of my life going, oh, how I love this woman. I don't. Some mornings I do. Just depends what emotional state I'm in at the time. Yeah. You do understand what I'm saying here, don't you? Yeah. Does that mean I therefore don't love her the mornings where I don't feel like that? Absolute claptrap, because love is a choice. And the emotions will come and the emotions will go and the emotions are to be our servants, not our masters. Our job is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in making sure this is true. And how do we do that? We feed on the word of God. 
we read the scriptures, we learn God's way, God's understanding, God's perspective on things. Then we do as he says. Reading the Bible and understanding, it's only half the deal. In fact, it's less than half the deal. We read, we understand, then we put into practice. Then we choose to think about the good, and then we go on praying, and then we pray again, God, fill me with your spirit, because I've still got an awful lot to learn about this, and I don't get it right all that often. It's a journey, it's a battle. And I've met a lot of Christians who, who come to me and say, look, I feel I, I'm, I'm being defeated here because I, I don't always get it right and I have to start again and so on. And I, I just want to encourage anybody who feels like that with this simple truth. The fact that you feel like that means you're still in the battle. And God has called us to the battle. The battle for the mind. The day you stop feeling like, like that is the day you're no longer in the battle and you've lost. God, I need more. I need to be more like Jesus. I need to handle the next situation better than I did the last situation. I need to learn how to love that person who is difficult to love. Would you help me? Would you fill me again with your spirit and again with your spirit? Would you help me to see truth? Because I know in the end that Jesus is truth. The third thing is simply this. The central issue hasn't changed. Christian people are called to love one another. Not the sentimental schmaltz that passes for love, certainly not the erotic, physical grotesqueness which people give the label to as love. I'm talking about the agape love of 1 Corinthians 13, and if you want to translate the word agape, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 13, the only nearest equivalent English word you can get. It is love, but it is commitment. We're called to love each other, to be committed to each other, to encourage, to support, to warn, oh yeah, to warn, to rescue when somebody's going the wrong way, to speak the truth in love. I'm not talking about just saying, ah, oh, lovely, bless you, lovely, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about people who are prepared to go to one another and say, look, I'm really concerned in the direction you're heading. I'm really concerned for your well-being. To have the courage to say that is a sign of love. Christians have to be real. We have to live in the real world. The Bible tells us that people will know we belong to Jesus by the love, by the utter commitment we have for one another. And it tells us that in the early church, people were amazed at the love Christians had for one another. And this is what John says in 1 John 2, verse 9. This is hard-hitting. This is not me. This is the Bible. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because darkness has blinded them. We need to be people of light, people of love, people of joy. And the source of all those things, by the grace of God, is the spirit God gives us. Isn't that exciting? The journey we have to live. So, don't murder. And actually, take nothing else for no. Um, don't hate. 
don't belittle. Make the choice. Make the choice to love. Let's pray. Father, these are hard words and we, we thank you for the underlying grace which is ours in Jesus Christ because we know we fall short. But we ask that you would enable us in the power of your Holy Spirit to fall short less and to grow and to become more like Jesus, to become more like the people you've called us to be. Help us raise our horizons and see that it's not hopeless, that the battle is still there to be fought. And help us increasingly to be an example of what your body can look like on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.